0: read of uh, Peter's testimony to the Jerusalem church. Just want to read you some testimony that uh, have appeared on uh, insurance forms that people have put in following accidents. One person wrote, coming home I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Another one said, the other car collided with mine without giving any warning of its intentions. Another one said, a pedestrian hit me and went under my car. Another one said, the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I'd been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident that's great no I'm not going to read that one that's a bit rude um, <laughs> the, the, no, the pedestrian had no idea which way to run and so I ran over him I pulled away from the side of the road glanced at my mother-in-law and headed over an embankment oops the telephone pole was approaching I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front of my car. And so it goes on. There's, there's hundreds of them. testimonies from people who, um, yeah, kind of make themselves sound a bit daft, don't know whether they're serious or whether they just didn't realize what they were saying. What's our testimony? What's our testimony? Not just this morning, but day by day, our words. Is our testimony kind of hard to take seriously like like those ones? Does our testimony match up to who we are day by day? Does our testimony point to the incredible grace of God at work in our lives? Or do our lives not quite add up? Do our lives point towards a, a God who is generous, who is awesome, who is above all? Or do our lives kind of point to God being an incidental on the side? here in these verses he's giving a testimony in actually quite difficult circumstances and you might think well why why is it difficult because actually it was really exciting what was going on was incredible in verse 1 we hear that the Gentiles had also received the word of God They had received the good news of Jesus. They had encountered the living God through Jesus, just as the Jews had done in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, just as the Samaritans had done in chapter 8. Jesus' words that we read of in in Acts chapter 1 were bit by bit being fulfilled, being accomplished. Go. Go. And be my witnesses in in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Wow! That was just incredible. And yet, Peter, Peter faced opposition. And get this, he he faced opposition from within. Those first believers in, in, in Jerusalem... They were saying, hang on a minute, what, what's all this about? You, you went into the house of a Gentile? I mean, that's like an Arsenal supporter going into the house of a Spurs supporter, for goodness sake. That, it's outrageous. No, it's far worse than that, in fact. They were outraged. They, their cultural conditioning said that that was not what was to be done. It was way outside of their comfort zone. But Peter, rather than getting all defensive, hot under the collar, he just recalls what took place. He recalls what God had done. He recalls it clearly, faithfully. Trusting that God would speak to those that were listening. And he was attentive to God. Not just in his delivering of the testimony, but actually he'd been attentive to God in the experience that he was talking about as well. And he was making sure that the one that was being highlighted wasn't him. But it was God's actions through him. God at work through him. So that people could see God at work. He recalls what Jesus had taught in verse 15. Where Jesus had spoken and and said, John will be baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. He kept his humility. There was that sense of partnership in his testimony that that God was at work, but he was also allowing God to work through him. His life reflected God at work in him. And let's make no bones, Peter was not perfect. Some of you may have come across a, a, a children's thing called Horrid Henry, and there's a character called Perfect Peter. But Peter here was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he kept coming back to God and asking him to help. I want us to look for just a couple of minutes at his testimony, because actually it's a really powerful testimony. There, there are kind of four slugs at, at, at God's compelling action in this story. Four times seems that, that he noticed how God was at work in this situation. So let's just have a, a very quick look at those before we then say, well, how does that touch us today? Because that's what we need to see too. But let's look first at the divine vision, God's given vision that Peter recounts. Of course, he, he's telling it from his perspective, and he brings Cornelius into it in, in chapter 10. Cornelius is the first one that hears, but here it's Peter explaining to other people, verses four to 10. He spoke of what he saw. An incredible, kind of bizarre vision. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago with Gary, and I looked at it a little bit the week before that, because it, it kind of contains kind a of chapter and a half of acts. It must be something important. That vision was repeated three times. And it blew his mind. Surely not, Lord, he says. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I'm a good Jew. But it was repeated. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Don't call anything impure that God has made Clean. So there was a vision that blew his understanding of his world apart and expanded it. And he began to understand as he followed the divine command, the second thing, the second slug I suppose, at God's compelling him into action. Verses 11 and 12. He's told, have no hesitation to go with the men from Caesarea. These Gentiles, these men that to a Jew would have been unclean. Have no hesitation to step out and go with them. By the way, they're downstairs. Go and meet them. Welcome them in. Sort yourself out and go with them. It's really interesting at this point that actually he involves other people. You see in verse 12 that there were six brothers went with Peter. I can just imagine the, the scenario. Peter's come down off the roof and he's, he's kind of a little bit blown out anyway. And then he says to... Come, come here, I've got to, we can't go to Caesarea because I've just seen this thing and it's just completely amazing, come on and then he said, Mary, come on, you, you've got to come with me and, and, and Mel, you come as well six people he had to convince to go with him wow but without hesitation he got them on their feet and they went without hesitation all the while the third thing was going on, divine preparation. God gave a vision, God gave a command but he was also preparing the way, verses 13 and 14. He speaks about how already Cornelius had met with a vision from God too. And he reflects this to the people that were criticising him who were saying, you must be out of your mind. What's this all about? He says, no, God's stamp was on this. Because look, not only did I see a vision, I wasn't in la-la land. Because, look, this man from Caesarea also, at the same time, was told to come and fetch me. And just as I was having this vision, so those men came and sought me out. That's not a coincidence, is it? That's extraordinary work of God. God was preparing the way for for an incredible moment, actually, in the history of the church. And that's why it takes up a chapter and a half. Because actually it it was blowing wide open the doors for Jesus to be known and loved and followed by any person regardless of their race or creed. And then fourthly, there was divine action. Verses 15 to 17. You see how God was at work as he recounts all that had happened clearly, faithfully, in Cornelius, his household, he also recounts how as he spoke the gospel of Jesus, they are moved to repentance. They are able to be saved. They are able to be baptised in the Holy Spirit, just as had happened to the first group in Jerusalem. So as Peter explains all this, Faithfully talks about each of those divine kind of slugs of a baseball bat, if you like. They're really incredible pieces of God's action His vision, His command, His preparation, and His action in that situation. So those people laid down their objections. Verse 18 when they heard Peter's testimony, they had no further objections. It's kind of almost a courtroom phrase, isn't it? No further objections, Your Honor. Because his evidence, his testimony, was compelling. It was incredible. Can you imagine the the relief all round? Just imagine for a moment that, that you guys were all sitting there, The the, the believers in Jerusalem, and and I was Peter, and I was was trying to explain what was going on. You imagine the tension in the room as I was trying to explain. Look, it's all right. Please, listen to me. It's all right. I know I went into the house of a Gentile, but it's all right because, you see, God did this and this and this and this. And all of a sudden, ah, no further objections. But not only that, it wasn't just, me. all right then. It was, thank God, wow! They worshipped God, because they realised God was at work in this. This wasn't some batty fisherman who had kind of lost the plot, but God was at work in this. I just, I, just picturing in that moment, whew, if you were Peter, you'd be like, whoa, I'm glad that's done. Thank you, Lord, as everybody else joined in praising God, as it says there in verse 18. No further objections, and they praised God. So what can we take from Peter's testimony for us today? I guess there are four things In the text that maybe we can take from Peter's testimony. And then there are a few questions just for you to mull over as we think about this idea of testimony. Think about this idea of actually walking with God to show that He is sovereign in our lives even though we are not perfect. So what can we take from from Peter's testimony? Well, the first thing is that God has a huge heart for unity in his church. He doesn't want to discriminate against culture or creed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's each of us and our families, and our neighbors, and our colleagues. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But we're not monochrome, we're not all the same. But God wants us to unite under him. I often get quite excited on a Sunday morning, I think even in my, one of the prayers that I, I, I led us in this morning, just imagining around the world this day, believers gathered in different places, in New Zealand, in Papua New Guinea, in China, in France, in Belgium, in Romania, around the room United States where else in Australia where else have we got represented in the room India. in India Austria. Austria all around the world united by Jesus of course because we're not monochrome we need patience don't we We need grace. We need discernment. The church's history is littered with instances of human beings kind of rubbing up the wrong way and going off down here and going off down there and kind of just getting sidetracked. Please, God, that we would have patience and grace and love. That we would look to one another and our differences and, and work with those. So that we can grow, but we can only do that with God's help. So there's the first thing. God has a heart for unity and calls us to work for that. The second thing as well, though, God gave his Holy Spirit not just to the Jews in Jerusalem, but he gave his Holy Spirit to all who would believe in him. And we will sense his working in different ways. But he is at work saving people to him. By the work of his Holy Spirit. It wasn't just for the Jews. It wasn't just for that first century, but it was for us. Jesus promised another comforter that he would walk with us. Sometimes his work is very visible and obvious, sometimes it is very quiet, almost imperceptible. (coughs) But I wonder. Are we alive to his Holy Spirit? Are we alive to him at work in us? Working not for our glory, not to make us look good. Paul got so sick, I suppose, so, so frustrated with the Corinthian church that, that kind of showed off and kind of shouted out about some of the gifts of the Spirit and squashed other people, and excluded other people, and it became about them, instead of about God. Let's make sure that as we're attentive to the Holy Spirit, it's about him, not about ourselves. The third thing that comes out of this testimony, and I guess it's about Cornelius, you see, Cornelius, was a, he was a good bloke. I see as I, I look in front of me, I've said it before, good people, nice people, regular people. Men and women who are likeable and who do all sorts of really good stuff, just like Cornelius. But Cornelius still needed saving. Even though he was a God-fearing man, he, he had a sense of God. But he still needed Jesus. Every single one of us needs Jesus. Cornelius' good works didn't save him. Jesus saved him. Verse 14, look, he will bring a message to your household through which you will be saved. He needed to encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I guess related to that, the fourth thing we can take from this testimony is that the gospel is incredibly powerful because it transcended cultural boundaries. We read in chapter 9 of Saul, a good, devout Jew. To be fair, he was almost a bigot and a bully. He wasn't actually a very nice piece of work, Saul. But Jesus came to him and saved him. Cornelius, in many senses, was a far more deserving person. But Jesus saved him too. The power of the gospel was incredible. Jew or Gentile, zealot or seeker, the gospel touches in a powerful, powerful way. And the good news was at work, through Peter, through his life, through his words. We know that he wasn't perfect. Just think about for a minute. While he was with Jesus, he kept messing up, didn't he? Peter just kept on messing up. But Jesus kept drawing him back. And actually, bit by bit, Peter grew and learnt and learnt and grew and messed up and learnt and grew and messed up and learnt and grew. Peter's life was an incredible witness to the Gospel. And it was beautifully communicated to Cornelius. As Peter spoke in verse 14, something really struck me for our testimony. You might recall the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 21, where he tries to give assurance that he says, I will give you the words. When you are being questioned and pushed and persecuted, I will give you the words, I will give you the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to contradict. That's borne out in what happened with Peter as he was given a message for these Gentiles in Caesarea and as he was able to give his testimony to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. Jesus' opponents might well have thought that they'd beaten him by crucifying him. But the cross and the grave could not hold Jesus. Jesus' words in Luke 21 were borne out. And then Peter, writing later to the churches, in his first letter to the churches across Asia. Let me just read it to you. He kind of carries that advice through. He says in 1 Peter 3, 15, But in your hearts, Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Exactly what Peter did to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem. He gave an account. He was ready. He relied on God and, and remembered what Jesus had said to him. We need to have his word kind of pulsing around our, our, our being. It doesn't mean to say that you've got to be a PhD in theology. It just means that you faithfully need to pick up your Bible and ask God to speak to you day by day. So that as you go into situations, God's story is a part of you. So that you are prepared to be able to share. And I reckon most of us, be honest, whenever we talk about Jesus, we come away thinking, Oh, didn't do that very well. Because it's precious to us. And we want to share it well. But we, we need to trust that if we've been faithful, that God will be faithful too. And actually he will work. So don't beat yourselves up. Just be yourself. And be prepared to give an answer and an account as to why you have hope so here's the questions just thinking about 1 Peter 3.15 is Jesus Lord in my heart am I prepared to give an answer for the hope that I have Can I explain who Jesus is in my life? If I can't, then maybe that's something to be working on this week. Maybe jot it down. Just kind of work it around, maybe on a piece of paper, maybe work it around in your head as you're doing whatever you're doing. What what is it? How would I explain that? Don't tie yourself in knots, but just keep it simple. And can I do that with gentleness and respect? Or do I suddenly kind of get on my high horse and kind of... (laughs) want to kind of ram it down someone's throat. Or do I just respect the person I'm speaking to? And have confidence that, that God is at work. I wonder... Who needs to hear a testimony of who Jesus is this week from your life or your words? Will I trust God to help me? If I get that opportunity to say something, will I trust God? when I'm confronted with something that would tempt me to kind of respond in a way that isn't particularly God-honouring. Let's be encouraged today by Peter's testimony. Let's be encouraged today by God's incredible action in history and God's incredible grace that is available, his sheer undeserved generosity towards us. Let's ask him to help us to be living testimony to who he is in this world.